Well, now let's turn to the reading of God's word and the preaching of that word. This is the central focus of our time together on Sunday mornings, that we might see Jesus, that we might hear about Jesus, that we might celebrate Jesus. And to that end, please turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, the message this morning is Stephen's defense. Stephen's defense. And this morning, I would like you to envision a courtroom. Because we are going to listen to the defense make its case in a very important trial. Now, this courtroom is set in the first century, first century Jerusalem. And we have to start with the judge. And the judge is God himself. God sits in judgment on all that we are about to hear. And his verdict, his verdict is the final verdict. He is the supreme judge, and his courtroom is, in the ultimate sense of the word, the supreme court. There is no appeal. Next, we have the prosecuting attorney, and that would be the high priest representing the Jewish council of elders called the Sanhedrin. Stephen has been dragged before this ruling council on serious charges last week, In Acts chapter 6, we listened as the prosecution made its case against Stephen on charges that, quite frankly, were trumped up with the help of false witnesses. The charges against Stephen are found in Acts 6.11, and I think it would be good just to look there briefly, Acts 6.11, to look at the charges that Stephen will now defend himself from in today's message. Acts 6.11. Then they secretly instigated men and said, We have heard him, they're speaking of Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So the charges are that Stephen spoke blasphemous words against Moses and God. To speak blasphemous words against Moses is to speak against the law says Alan Thompson in his commentary on Acts, and the customs handed down from Moses. To speak blasphemous words against God is to speak against the temple. It's called the holy place in verse 13. Blasphemy here means more than a wrong use of God's name. It means to have violated the majesty of God by casting doubt on the sacredness and eternal significance of the law and the temple for his people. Now, these are serious charges. These are charges, high crimes of treason against Israel, against Moses, against the law, against the temple, against God himself, and they're worthy of death. So the courtroom sits in tense silence as the high priest finishes making his case and thunders these accusations based on false witnesses against Stephen. And they all look at Stephen. And Stephen's face shone like the face of an angel. He had no fear at all, but he had calm faith in God because God had filled him with the Holy Spirit. And as the high priest leans into Stephen, as we read in Acts 7, 1, and he asks him, are these things so? Stephen, ignoring the high priest's very leading question, that question would have been thrown out in a court of law today. It was a very leading question. 
Very incriminating question. He ignores that. He steps forward and calmly yet confidently calls his first witness. And Stephen's first witness is none other than Abraham. Now, what a contrast. What a contrast. Stephen calls forth a witness that is the father of the faith. While in the court would be the high priest witnesses, a bunch of liars paid to bring false testimony against Stephen. Stephen's appeal, his defense is going to be based on the great heroes of Israel's past, heroes like Abraham. And in doing so, God provides us this contrast that there are superior judges and superior witnesses representing Stephen. Because you see, Stephen is is defending himself against the charge of blasphemy against God because Stephen has made the claim that the temple is not the only place where God puts his name, his presence, or his blessing. Shocking. See, Stephen is defending himself from the wrong accusation that he has spoken against God by speaking against the place where God put his name and his presence and his blessing because he said, you know, the temple is no longer needed. The temple is going to be destroyed. The temple is not the only place where God's presence and his blessings are found. I mean, I could just see him in the, in the council And he would just be saying, listen, God's presence and God's blessing is not limited to that building. Here's a question for us. Where do we go for God's presence and God's blessing? That's what God is bringing home to us. Where do you go to find God's presence and God's blessing? Or perhaps some of you to run away from it. Where do you look for any kind of blessing, any kind of rest, any kind of presence of God? Because really, that's what God's presence is. My soul is restless until it finds God, or better spoken, God finds it. Augustine said that. I believe that. Whether we know it or not, and most humans don't know it, there is no rest but in the presence of God. There is no blessing but from the hand of God. So where do you go to find it? Friends, pleasure, sports. My son and I were joking this morning. Uh, I, I did not watch the game yesterday. My beloved Gators did play against another team yesterday. But we, we, were, we were laughing about that. We said, why do we find such joy in something we have no control over? I have no control over a bunch of guys playing a football game in Tallahassee, Florida. None. And yet I can find so much joy, or for some here in this auditorium, so much sorrow in that game. I I was driving here and I was just thinking of growing up in Miami and and going to all the Dolphins games when I was a little boy. And 1966 was the first season. I was there for that first season. I was there for the first touchdown that was run back. It was a kickoff by Joe Auer uh, against the Buffalo Bills. And I lived, I mean, sports was my God. And in many respects, it can still be that. It can be the place I go to to find the presence of God and the blessing of God, in quotation marks. You understand what I'm saying? I'm tired. I feel a little cursed. 
I'm exhausted. The battle's been tough. I just, I want to find something. What, What I should look to is God and his blessing. What I often go to is sports. For me, it's just me. Some people, it's far more toxic. It's in drugs or illicit relationships. It's in money. It's in work. I believe the question here, the question here that God is asking, I believe the question that Stephen is defending himself against is this. Are God's presence and blessing limited to a particular place? Are God's blessing, are his presence and his blessing limited to a particular place? Now the Jews would say, oh yeah. And that place is called the temple. And you are blaspheming God if you say that it can be anywhere else but the temple because that's the place where God put his presence, his name, his blessing. That's the place. And if you say it can be found anywhere other than the temple, kill him because he's blaspheming God. And he's making his case right now. But, oh, friends, let it come down to you today. Where do you go for God's presence and blessing? What, What have you made an idol? Because the Jews made the temple an idol, a good thing. They made it an idol. God sent Stephen to blast that idol into a thousand pieces. And I pray God send the Spirit to blast whatever idol you have in your heart to pieces. So let's look at the first witness, Abraham. Stephen calls Abraham to the witness stand. Stephen wants to make a case. And he wants Abraham to help him explain, did Abraham, did I blaspheme God? Did I speak against the temple when I said that God's presence and blessing are not limited, catch this, limited to the temple? That's the question Stephen wants Abraham to answer. Whether in Abraham's experience, God's presence and blessing were limited to a particular place like the temple or the promised land. Let's listen to Abraham's testimony. By the way, read this. Put your finger on these words. This is God speaking to us this morning. 7, verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, verse 5, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised, but promised, promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. I love Corey's prayer this morning. I'm asking God for land, though I don't have a dollar. (laughs) I'm asking him for land. Big, glorious, green, on the major thoroughfare land where I can build, we can build a building and declare Jesus is Lord. Though I have no child yet. Sorry, just got inspired there. And God spoke to this effect, verse 6, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, 
and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So, this is the question. Abraham is testifying. Can God, can his presence blessing come to us outside of the temple in this land? Or is it limited to the temple of this land? And Abraham testified that, well, yes, the God of glory appeared to me in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Now, remember, God's glory to a Jew is linked to the temple in Old Testament theology. This is where God's glory resides, is, the, is, in, the, is in the temple. So God, the God of glory came to me in Mesopotamia. Listen, the God of glory, God's glory, is his self-revelation. That's God's glory. So according to Abraham, that self-revelation occurred outside the temple, outside the promised land. It occurred in a pagan land. Listen, God revealed himself, his glory, to Abraham and called him when he was a pagan idol worshiper in Mesopotamia. Praise God. So, Stephen is saying, is it blaspheming God and speaking against the temple to say that God can reveal himself to however, wherever, and to whomever he so desires, even if it is outside the confines of the promised land in this temple? And thankfully, thankfully for us, Abraham's answer is a resounding, no, it's not blasphemy. God reveals himself to his people in pagan lands, like Miami, Florida. See, God revealed himself to Abraham and he called him the land of his fathers where Abraham had an earthly inheritance to go into the land of Canaan where he had no inheritance, not even a foot's length. It would be like you and I being called to leave America where we maybe have some inheritance and go to a foreign land where we have none. Many of you or your parents have experienced that. And to do it based on a promise. God made a promise to Abraham. Look carefully at the promise that he made to Abraham in verse verses uh, 6 and 7. At the end of verse 5, but promised to give it to him, that is this land, Canaan, as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offering, offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. That land is Egypt, by the way. And he would enslave them and afflict them 400 years in Egypt. So part of the promise includes enslavement and affliction for 400 years. But then it also includes, verse 7, God's judging of that nation, Egypt, and then God bringing them out of Egypt. Why? Look at the end of verse 7. To worship God in this place. To worship God in the promised land. The point made by Abraham was clear. Write this down. Quote from John Stott. Before there was a holy place, there was a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. Before there was a holy place, the temple, there was a holy people, God's people, to whom God had pledged himself. The covenant of circumcision. The promise of a land. The promise that you're going to be my people before there's a holy place. There's a holy people because God is holy. And then God promises or pledges himself to them. I'm going to bring you out and give you this land so that you might worship me. This certainly challenged the council and the high priest's view that the only holy place was the temple. 
The temple was not the only holy place. In fact, where Stephen's going with all this is that the temple is not the ultimate holy place. No, the ultimate holy place, the ultimate place of God's presence and God's blessing. Men, he was speaking to the council, is not that building, is not this temple. I'm not speaking against it. No, no, the ultimate place of God's blessing and of God's presence is a person, not a place. It's a spiritual house, not a house made by human hands. And I tell you right now, friends, if Abraham were here right now, if I could call him to testify right now, number one, it would freak all of you out, me included. Number two, (laughs) number two, he would point right at you and he would say, you're that house. You're that holy people. 2,000 years after this was spoken, 4,000 plus years after I received the promise from God the Father, you are the inheritors of the promise. Hallelujah is right. It is Jesus who reveals God's God to us, and he does it in pagan lands to a bunch of idolaters. It is Jesus who makes God's people holy. It is Jesus who makes our assemblies holy. It is Jesus who is here right now by the Holy Spirit to give us a sense of his presence, to teach us this word, to grab our attention off of the frivolous things of this world that so distract us and draw our attention to him in this season. God calls pagan people in a pagan land to be his holy people where he dwells. Abraham sits down. Stephen calls his next witness, Joseph, to strengthen his point that God's presence and God's blessing are not limited to any particular place. So Joseph, would you please come to the witness stand? Joseph is walking to the witness stand. He has a very unique view on God's presence and blessing. Very unique. Let's listen to his testimony. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Now remember, why did they sell him into Egypt? Remember the the promise to Abraham? They were going to be sojourners in a land, and they were going to be enslaved in that land 400 years. Well, the way they got to that land is Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs, sold him into slavery to Egypt, just like these council members, the brothers of the apostles, have been trying them out of jealousy of them. We read that earlier in Acts. But back here to Acts 7, verse 10. And God was with him, verse 10, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. So Jacob is still back in Canaan, Israel. Joseph's been sold to slavery. There's a famine. Joseph's been made the ruler. Joseph rules in the midst of his enemies. He's a type of Christ. (laughs) And so he's got lots of food. Jacob sends his sons, the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers. Hey, get us some food. On the second visit, verse 13, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt. Remember the promise to Abraham? And he died. He and his fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in 
Shechem. See, God's presence and God's blessing rescued Joseph and made him a ruler in Egypt, even though his brothers, the patriarchs, the fathers of the other 11 tribes, had sold him into slavery. God spoke to Joseph while Joseph was a slave in Egypt. Just like he spoke to Abraham when Abraham was a pagan in Mesopotamia. God's presence and blessing, they are not limited to any particular place. That's what Joseph is saying. And what he's saying to us today is that God's presence and blessing are right here with us right now. As we listen to this message, as we seek to obey God's word together. I mean, it's amazing when we read this. God vindicates Joseph by using him to save the very brothers who rejected him and sold him into slavery. In the same way that God has vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead to bring eternal life to those who are rejecting him. Starting with us, but certainly this council. I mean, I mean, look at Acts 4, 10 to 12. I believe it's on the screen here. Peter preaching, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He's preaching to the leaders, the council, the elders of Israel, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, dear unbeliever. Listen to me, God's presence and God's blessing are in Christ alone. There is no one else, there is no other name, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, dear friend. If you are here this morning, please don't be like the high priest and council of elders who refuse to listen to this truth. God's presence is not tied to a building or a land, but a person. And that is the lesson to be learned from Joseph here. Here's the lesson. That if Mesopotamia was the surprising context in which God appeared to Abraham, according to John Stott, and Egypt was the equally surprising scene of God's dealings with Joseph, God was not only with Joseph, but also with all his family, for he saved them from starvation during the famine. You cannot restrict God's activity, says Stephen, to certain sacred zones. God is at work everywhere. God is at work in your home. God is at work in your school. God is at work in your job. God is at work in the grocery store. God is at work even at the mall this afternoon. (laughs) He's at work during your Noche Buena celebrations. He was at work last Thursday at the Turkey Bowl. As I was watching them all prepare it, by the way, Caesar did not break his collarbone. He dislocated his shoulder, for those of you who were there. Um, And I meet a man named Otto, who's walking around the track watching us set up three football fields. And God's at work. And Otto says, I've been living here for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. I never even knew. What are you guys doing? I said, we do this every Thanksgiving. He says, oh, what is this? This is a church. And by the end of the afternoon, he goes, I love this church. This church is great. There's so much excitement and zeal, all these young people. This is really great. Thinking like, we've been here 16 years, you know. <laughs> but God was at work. It comes to find out Otto is Jesus Aviles' son, son's soccer coach. Didn't even know that Jesus was, you know, doing this. I said, yeah, there he is right over there setting up one of the fields. God's at work. God's at work. He's, he's going to be at work at Christmas near the beach on that Saturday night, December 15th. 
He's going to be at work in your office Christmas parties. He's going to be at work wherever. God is the one who sustains and guides us, even when we're exiles in Egypt. See, Abraham and Joseph agree God's presence and God's blessing are not limited to any particular place, whether pagan Mesopotamia or worldly Egypt. God is there with his people to bless and sustain them. And God sustained Israel for 400 long years in Egypt until the time of Moses. Until the time of Moses. Friends, Moses is a unique figure in the history of redemption. God kept his promise to Abraham using Moses to deliver Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And God used Moses to reveal to Israel his law and constitute him as a people at Mount Sinai. So Stephen now calls his star witness Moses. Now remember... Stephen's got to be careful here, because not only was he accused of blaspheming God by speaking against the temple, but remember he was accused of blaspheming Moses. So they're they're all saying, you better be careful with this witness. If you speak poorly to Moses in front of us, it's over, buddy. You better be careful the questions you ask of Moses. Stephen says, okay. Okay. Moses, I just want to ask you one question. Is God limited to this building and this land? Is God limited to this building and this land? Or is God everywhere present? And is God's holy place everywhere God may be? Is God everywhere present? And is God's holy place everywhere God may be? Or is God only present in this building and this land and his holy place only in that building? Everybody kind of looks over at Moses. And Moses just begins by saying, look, God is everywhere present because God was with me through my entire life. From the courts of Pharaoh in Egypt to exile in Midian to the wilderness for 40 years with God's people. God is, was with me. So listen to Moses' testimony. Verse 17. But... As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. Amazing. And brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and his Deeds. Oh, friends, God is everywhere, even in the courts of Pharaoh, protecting the future deliverer of Israel from Egypt by the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's in control. He's everywhere. He's going to fulfill Abraham's promise by delivering the deliverer from the death edict of Pharaoh when the deliverer was three months old. And he's going to use that Pharaoh's daughter to do it. He's everywhere present. He's in the courts of Pharaoh. He's in the boardroom today. 
He's in the places of highest power. God is everywhere. He was with Moses during those first 40 years of his life. And he was with Moses in the second 40 years of his life. Look at verse 23. When he was 40 years old, he being Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Verse 26. And on the following day, he appealed to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. Just imagine physically saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. God is everywhere. God was with Moses in his exile in Midian, and he cared for him there in his exile in Midian. God's not only in the boardroom, but God's in the living room. It says there in Midian, he became a father of two sons. God is in the living room. God is in your homes. Not, in your, not just in your workplaces, but in your homes. And God was with Moses in the last 40 years of his life. Look at chapter 7, verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, He was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation. That word is ecclesia, the word we get church from earlier in Acts. The congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Oh, friends, God was with Moses in the third 40 years of his life in the wilderness with God's people. God is everywhere present. He's with Moses when he's in Pharaoh's courts in the boardroom, when he's in Midian in the living room, and he's with Moses in the wilderness, in the dorm room. 
I mean, I think of those that are going back to school. Wherever we are that we feel like we're in a wilderness, God is with us. Wherever you are, God is with you. But listen, here's the point that Moses is making. Not only is God with me, not only is God's presence, God's blessing going to be shown in some place outside of the temple in the promised land, but God's holy place is everywhere God may be. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moses is agreeing with Stephen. The holy place is not limited to that temple. It's everywhere God may be. Very important quote from David Peterson in his commentary on this passage. God's command... Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Expresses the belief that the place where God makes his presence known is holy. God's encounter with Abraham and Joseph outside the borders of the promised land has already been noted. Stephen progressively shows that he is not against the idea that the temple in Jerusalem could be such a holy place. He's not dissing the temple. But he certainly challenges the notion that the temple is the only place, or indeed the ultimate place where God is met. We know that he's going to declare that the ultimate place where God is met is Jesus. The ultimate holy ground is Jesus. And by this method, Stephen was attempting to clear the way for the proclamation of the centrality of Jesus in the nation's worship, life, and thought. How about clearing the way in your heart for the centrality of Jesus in your worship and your thought and in your life? If Stephen were here, that's what he'd be talking to you about. Because that was the issue with the elders of Israel. They didn't want to clear out their tradition. They didn't want to clear out their way of thinking so that Jesus would be central in their worship and in their life and in their thought. See, the issue of worship is big here, guys. It's huge. It's huge. God is everywhere present and the holy place is everywhere God may be and we worship at the holy place. Where do you worship? Where do you worship? Do you worship at the holy place where God is, Jesus Christ? Or are you like me that at times we worship at makeshift altars made with human hands? Poor, pitiful replicas of what we were meant to do, is worship the living God. It can only be done at Jesus. That's the only place to worship God is in Jesus. And when we fail to do that, we start worshiping foreign gods, and it's exactly what Jesus, excuse me, Israel did. By rejecting Moses and later rejecting Jesus, they started worshiping foreign gods. Oh, friends, where do you go to meet with God? Do you even meet with God? See, the the, the Jews idolized the temple. They totally missed Moses. They totally rejected Moses. Stephen's point, you've done it from the beginning, guys, and you've missed and rejected the one that Moses said was coming after him that was greater than him. But you know what? God is with Moses, even in his rejection. 
God is with Moses, even in his rejection. I mean, just quickly look back at verse 25 and see the rejection of Moses by Israel. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Look at verse 27. But, this, but the man who was wrong, wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. That's a physical thrust aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, that's exactly what they're saying to Jesus, isn't it? It's exactly what we say to God at times, isn't it? As our kids used to say when they're little, you're not the boss of me. Well, I mean, he's not the boss of me. And we say that to God, don't we? You're not the boss of me. I'm my own boss. Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? That's a repetition of verse 27. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He was prophesying about Jesus here. This is the one who was in the congregation, the ecclesia, the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. This is the one who heard God's voice, received the law from the hand of angels, received living oracles to give us. Look at verse 39. And our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, turn to Egypt. You see, you're either gonna, you're gonna worship, you're gonna worship, you're gonna worship. You will worship. The question is, who will you worship? What will you worship? When you thrust aside Moses, when you thrust aside Jesus, when you, when you persist in worshiping and getting the presence of God and the blessing of God at these makeshift altars of your own hands, hands, human hands, then you are an idolater. The Jews were idolaters. The council were idolaters. They had idolized the temple. I mean, this link between Moses and Jesus is so strong here. I mean, Peter, even when he preached way back in Acts chapter 3, said the same thing. He quoted Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, look, Moses said, listen to this prophet who's coming after me. And if you don't, you're going to be cut off from your people. Stephen is just bringing that home. But, th- but verse 39 is the key verse for us this morning. Because what verse 39 tells us, it's all about worship. It's all about worship. It's all about worship. Worship is at the heart of this question of whether God's presence and blessing are limited to a particular place. They are not limited to a particular place, but they are limited to a particular person. Jesus. And if we reject Jesus, then in our hearts we will go back to Egypt. Look at that, at the end of verse 39. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They refused to obey him. And their hearts turned back to Egypt. Look at verse 40. Look at what God did when they turned their hearts back to Egypt, rejecting God's deliverer, Moses. And saying to Aaron... Verse 40, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, Moses at that point was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. That's where Moses was. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away. Oh, friends, God turned away from them in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And God is about to turn away from Israel 2,000 years later in the council of Jews who are about to condemn Stephen. God turned away, turned away, and gave them over to worship to the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring, he's quoting now Amos, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Beyond Babylon. You see, God's judgment is seen and handing them over to the idolatrous worship of gods that are no gods. And friends, the thing that we have to be careful of, even as believers today, is that God, God may allow us to become captive to the consequences of our own evil choices. It's interesting, this, the form of this question. Look at verse 42. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? This is a quote from Amos 5. And and the way that that question is asked, it's, it's implied, no. No, no, listen, Israel, from the beginning, from the very beginning, from that time before Moses even came down with the Ten Commandments, your hearts went back to Egypt, went back to the world, and you, you offered sacrifices to other gods rather than to the God who rescued you. So they said, oh, no, no, God didn't rescue us through Moses. These Moloch did. These other gods did. Fire up the the grill. Throw in the gold. Let's pop out an idol of our own making. Let's worship there and be blessed and find God's presence. We do the same today. Because we do the same thing they did. We forget our great salvation. They forgot that it was Moses. They forgot what God did for them in the plagues in Israel. They forgot what God did for them at the Red Sea. They've forgotten God's salvation. And when we do that, we worship idols. Their idolatry was born from their soteriology, which is a fancy word for the theology or the study of salvation. They forgot that God saved them. They did not save themselves. And certainly no half-baked, wannabe God saved them. Do you remember God's great salvation? Are you grateful for that salvation? Oh, friends, worship is at the heart of the matter. And if you say to yourself, well, that could never happen to me. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to fire up the barbecue and pop out an idol and worship it in my backyard. Well, you may not do that, but I can tell you it is a very real temptation because Paul addresses it. Paul addresses it to the church at Corinth and therefore to the church in Miami Lakes. Listen to what Paul says, referring back to this time. 1 Corinthians 10, it's on the screen, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We not, we, listen, we must not put Christ to the test. He's talking to Christians here, guys. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now, these things happen to them as an example, as an example, as an example. Are you paying attention to the example? 
But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore, 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 let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's why we need community groups. That's why you need this sermon. That's why you need to gather together this afternoon. That's why you need to pray. That's why you need to celebrate Advent. That's why Jesus is the center, the only place of blessing in God's presence. Because our hearts are idol factories. We drift so easily. Verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Oh, thank you, Father. You are faithful. You are faithful. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. God's presence and blessings, they're limited to a person. But it's not your boyfriend or girlfriend. Flee immorality. Flee it. Idolatry is at issue. What? Yes. Because where do you go for blessing in the presence of God? To the true and living God. Or does your heart go back to Egypt and say, no, 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 he didn't deliver me. Here's where true joy and true pleasure and true blessing is. Oh, it's fake. It's false. Leads to death. Friends, here's 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 what's at issue. What's, What's at issue is our calling as the church. See, since worship of the true God was at the heart of the saving purpose of Israel. Remember, the promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bring you out from that land to bring you into this land to do what? To worship God. Remember when Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go to do what? Worship God. Since that's the purpose of God's people, Israel, they were compromised by their idolatry. They worshiped the wrong God. They failed to fulfill their destiny as God's covenant people. And what's at stake is our destiny as God's covenant people. See, we've been set free from idols to worship the true and living God, and so fulfill our call to make disciples of the nations, to be a blessing to the nations by proclaiming and living Christ. God's presence and blessing are not limited to a temple. They are limited to a person, Jesus. And now Stephen is going to bring in his final two witnesses because Stephen is pressing the point. God's presence can never be limited to that house built by human hands, not even the temple. So he's bringing in kings David and Solomon. David, who desired to build the temple and asked God for permission, God said, yes, but you're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. And Solomon, his son, who actually built it. So look at verses 44 to 50. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. So, so, so here Stephen isn't dissing the temple or the tent of witness, which is the temple's precursor. Tent of witness came into the land. Then when the temple was built, the tent of witness was brought in, the tablet, the, the, the tabernacle, the, um, the law was placed in the temple. So he's, he's honoring it. It was built according to God's plan. Our fathers, verse 45 in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, and he's going to quote Isaiah now, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? So so Stephen honors the temple. He honors the tent of witness. Both were built according to God's will, God's plan, but neither are God's home. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, verse 48. Now, I believe right there, I believe one of the things that's pointing to is, no, he doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. He dwells in spiritual houses, the church. The church. That's where God dwells. God dwells in us. We're the house where God dwells. Not a house made with hands, but a spiritual house. And then Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, says God, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, what Stephen is contrasting here is are things made by human hands and the creation of all things by God's hand. Therefore, he declares God totally independent of the Jerusalem temple. And in doing that, he declares God totally available to all with or without the temple. Don't you see, this is paving the way for the mission to the rest of the world. A Jew thought that to be saved, you had to come to Jerusalem, worship God in the temple, offer sacrifices in the temple. Well, God is saying, no, the temple was a picture of Jesus. That's where you're going to meet with me. And now it's going to be available to all with or without the temple. Next quote, John Stott. It is evident then from Scripture itself that God's presence cannot be localized and that no building can confine Him or inhibit His activity. If He has a home on earth, it is with His people that He lives. He has pledged Himself by a solemn covenant to be their God. Therefore, according to His covenant promise, wherever they are, there He is also. God is with us, friends. So now Stephen stands and brings God's verdict crashing down on this council. Stephen, point five, verses 51 to 53, declares God's verdict. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That term righteous one was a, was a known term for the Messiah whom you have now betrayed and murdered, speaking of their murder of Jesus, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Oh, friends, this stiff-necked people is exactly what they were called in Exodus 33 after the golden calf incident. These of uncircumcised hearts and ears speak of hearts that are hard and ears that are deaf, of lives where the covenant makes no difference at all. They had the covenant sign circumcision, but their hearts weren't circumcised. The covenant of circumcision had no effect on their inner disposition or their ability to heed or obey God's word. And that's a warning for some of you this morning. Christianity has no effect on your heart. And God is saying, run to the place where I'll meet you. Stop playing the games. 
Let me soften your heart and open your ears and you will truly find my presence and truly find my blessing my way. These guys resisted the Holy Spirit. Read Isaiah 63 when you go home today. Isaiah 63, 7 to 14. It speaks of the Holy Spirit with God's people and they resisted him. They persecuted the prophets. They killed those who announced Jesus. And then they killed Jesus. And now they're about to kill Stephen. And Stephen ends his whole argument saying, Oh, you say that I diss the law? You say that I... Well, Stephen was not me, so he probably wasn't doing it with as much attitude as I'm doing right now. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Did it much more godly. His face was glowing like an angel. But he's saying... In verse 53b, this is crushing to them. You guys received the law, but as I just declared to you, as Moses just testified, you, you didn't keep it. I'm not the one that's blaspheming against Moses. You are. You're the ones that have disrespected, disobeyed, rejected Moses, not me. And he says, and, and, and God is going to turn away from you, just like Moses said, if you don't repent and believe. But alas, he looks at them, he can see they're so mad. Bentley's going to preach this next week. The fury and the rage that is contained in these men, it's unbelievable. And he sees it, and he says, alas, you will not turn to Jesus, for you killed the prophets who announced his coming, and you killed Jesus, and you're about to kill me. You've rejected God, and God is now about to reject you. Oh, this last quote, Stephen's plea must have been desperate at this point as he cried out for them to discover that the meeting point between God and man is no longer a place but a person, the risen and soon returning King Jesus. Oh, celebrate Advent. God's blessings are found in Jesus, not in the temple or the law. They but point to Jesus. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. Jesus is the fulfiller of the law and the bearer of its curse. And now for us, God's people, in Jesus, we know God's presence and have true and free access to God the Father. And in Jesus, we are no longer condemned by the law, but He bearing the deserved curse for us and we receiving the promised Holy Spirit are empowered to actually begin to fulfill that same law that once condemned us. It's time to worship God, to live a life of love that pleases Him. Let's pray. Lord, this word falls upon us with eager hearts. We want to worship you. We acknowledge we quickly drift from you. Lord, we acknowledge that we forget our salvation. Lord, we want to be able to preach you, Jesus, from the Old Testament as Stephen did. Lord, we we declare that your presence and your blessing are not limited to a place, but they are limited to a person, and that person is Jesus. And we come this morning, and we want to worship Jesus. We want to obey Jesus. And we find so often that it's so difficult. Our hearts quickly turn back to Egypt. But would you, oh Father, arrest those hearts in Jesus and turn them back to Jesus 
May we celebrate Jesus. May this Christmas be about Jesus. May we celebrate the advent of Jesus. May we celebrate the return of Jesus. May we proclaim Jesus boldly and courageously. (laughs) Not just with our words, but with our lives. Oh God. Of Jacob. God of Isaac. God of Abraham. Help. Quietly stand and let's conclude with singing this song.